you have your Bibles with you there in your home this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, we're going to pick up with this narrative of Abraham's life in verse 5, and we'll work our way into chapter 13 this morning. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 5, and then we'll be reading down through chapter 13, verse 4. As you're finding your place there and settling in, uh, I do want to remind you that this Monday we will have another opportunity for you to come and and to be prayed for by one of our pastoral team. And so um, Monday morning, tomorrow morning from 10 to 1230, uh, myself and some of our pastoral team will be in the parking lot and you can come and uh, we would love to have an opportunity just to talk with you briefly. We'll be wearing masks. You'll stay in your car. We have an opportunity to hear about what God's doing your life, uh, maybe some prayer needs that you have, and then we'll get a chance to pray with you. So if you want to come, that's from 10 to 1230 uh, tomorrow morning. And then also, I want to let you know that this Wednesday night, we'll be participating in communion virtually. So uh, much like we did on our Good Friday service, you'll need to make some preparations, have some crackers, some juice there in your home, uh, but make preparation this Wednesday night, 6.30, and this will really take the place of our uh, normal prayer time. We're just going to participate. I'm going to lead us in a study of God's Word, and then we'll, we'll take communion together uh, virtually. Well, we come to Abraham again this morning. Last week, we looked at the call of Abraham. We didn't spend much time on the covenant uh, that God is making here, but this is a critical covenant. This covenant will be reiterated, and it will be expounded upon, and it will be more clearly understood as we work our way through the next uh, several chapters. But I do want to give you just a brief overview of this covenant. There's really three aspects or three parts to the covenant. One is land. The second is a great nation. We know this is going to be the nation of Israel. And then finally, we see in there uh, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your seed. And so you see on uh, really three levels of blessing here. One is a, a personal that, that God is going to bless Abraham personally. And then we see on a national level, you see Israel is going to be raised up to be this great nation. And then you also see a universal level to this covenant as well, because all of us will be blessed through this covenant that God will make through Abraham. You might well say, well, how are we blessed uh, as the nations? Well, uh, we know God is going to further clarify this covenant in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, 18, we're going to get there a little later on. But there, uh, God says to Abraham, in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He says seed singular, meaning one person, that there's going to come one Jewish boy, and he is going to bring the blessings that we lost in the fall, in the flood, and in the dispersion of the Tower of Babel. So he is going to bring salvation. He's that seed that we've been looking for since Genesis 3.15. In fact, Paul writes the, almost the entire book of Galatians is a commentary on that seed and the covenant that God established with Abraham. And in fact, Peter, in Acts chapter uh, 3 and verses 25 and 26, 
He talks about that promise made to Abraham and that seed being Jesus Christ. He sees the fulfillment of that as Christ. So both Peter and Paul see this covenant as ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Then we we see it's also a unilateral covenant. We touched on this last week as we looked about it, but we're going to learn more about this as we move forward. But it's so important that we see this, that God says, I will, I will, I will. That the promises of God that he is making here, this covenant, it's not a contract. It's something that God himself will accomplish. That God himself will will bear the full weight of this work. It's not a cooperative effort. It's not a partnership between God and Abraham. It is God's work. And there's one command, we saw it last week, one real command given to Abraham. Leave, go, or get out, whatever your translation is. But the point is clear, that Abraham cannot know the blessings of God without separation. He can't know the blessings of God's promises and keep and retain his life. In other words, if he's going to know the life that God wants to achieve in him, he himself will have to die. He'll have to lay down his life. Does that sound familiar? Quite honestly, all of this should sound very familiar to us because as we learned last week, Abraham is the father of all who believe. That Abraham is a picture of true and saving faith. He's a picture how a person is justified and made right with God on the basis of faith. Not just how a person is justified and made right, but he instructs us on what it means to walk with God. Not just be saved by faith, but walk by faith. And not only that, Abraham's going to be a picture of how we die in faith. He is a picture of faith. Uh, Abraham is going to die and not one of these promises will really come to fruition in terms of the land. The only real piece of land that Abraham's going to own is this little plot of ground where he and Sarah are going to be buried. This great nation, Abraham's going to die with essentially one son Isaac. And then all the nations of the world he certainly longed to look into. He was trusting in the Christ who would come, but he won't see that to fruition. He's going to die trusting that God will fulfill his promises in the future in time and space. Does that sound familiar to us? That we too go to the grave trusting in God's promises that he has made to us and that he will fulfill them in the future in time and space. So we're seeing a picture of what it means to be saved by faith, to walk by faith, and die by faith. The principle, though, that we're going to see today in our text today is that true faith is always a tested faith. True faith is always a tested faith. As I often say, every great profession must be tested. Abraham says, I love you, God. I will follow you. He leaves. He's trusting in God. And what happens next? Now he's going to be tested. You know, it's graduation season, college graduates, high school graduates. We're celebrating. It's awesome. So much fun. But the reality is we know what? They really haven't accomplished anything yet. All of us, what do we know? The real test is just now beginning. Now they're going to face life. And they're not going to take a test in the classroom. Now they're going to be in the lab of life. 
You know, same thing with, uh, with marriage. That young couple, I get to participate in these weddings. It's so much fun. They're up there. Boy, they love each other. I will love you till I die. And then they wake up the next morning. His breath stinks. He stinks. He can be rude. He can be angry. And now we're going to find out, do you really love this man? Now it will, your profession will be tested. Well, here we see that Abraham's faith is going to be tested. And there's a multitude of ways in which God tests your faith. But whenever God tests our faith, listen to me, the ultimate goal is always the same. That God is testing us to lead us to a place where we find all of our sufficiency in him. He's testing us to bring us to a place where we realize that all we need is God. And that is really the nature of Abraham's first test. There's going to be a famine. God is going to test him in the most basic area of food. That is God sufficient to meet the daily needs of his life? That Abraham can trust him with the great promises of God, but can he trust him in the area of food? And is this not relevant for us today? That, that for us as believers in Christ, oftentimes we don't have a problem trusting God with the great issues of salvation and our eternal destination. But where do we often struggle the most? It's in the area of food and, and clothing and the rent and mortgage payments and the little things. And we have to be tested. We have to struggle. I was reminded as I was studying this week that uh, Dave Ramsey's done this study on everyday millionaires, these guys who uh, have become millionaires, and he has found that more often than not, these millionaires, they didn't inherit their money. And when you learn their stories, and he'll talk about their stories, what he finds that almost is the, the, the common denominator with every one of these people is that they had to struggle. At some point in their life, they had to struggle, and through that struggle, they became stronger, and they developed principles that led them to a place where they became financially secure. It's interesting to me, though, with these same millionaires, what he found to be the case is oftentimes they will turn around then, and with their own children, you know what they try to do? They try to prevent their kids from ever having to struggle, that they will try to prevent your, their kids from experiencing the one thing that made them great. But here's the picture. Here's the point. God tests us. He puts us in positions where we struggle because he knows in the midst of that, our faith grows stronger. And even when we fail, even when we fall, we begin to realize more and more that all we need is God. That you will never know true greatness without testing without struggle, without trials. Which finally, before we jump into this, I know this is a long introduction, but bear with me. The other principle that we see in this is, is so true as well, that just because you're going through a struggle or a test doesn't mean that you're outside the will of God. Abraham here is being tested in a severe way. And it's something that God is allowing into his life to teach him and to grow him in his faith. Some of you are being tested today. You're going through a trial or a struggle 
please be encouraged. It doesn't always mean you're outside the, the will of God. And God might just be doing something great in your life, leading you to a place of understanding his all-surpassing sufficiency in your life. So with that in mind, let's pray together. We're going to work our way through this text, but I'm going to get on my knee this morning and just pray. If you want to join me, you can, but let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to come before your word. And God, I pray that we would heed the warnings of Scripture. And Lord, I pray that we would learn from the faith of Abraham. We'd learn more about who you are and your greatness and what you're often doing in our life. And God, I pray today we learn to trust you more. And no matter where we're at, we would be reminded again of your abundant and overwhelming grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look together in verse 5, Abraham's first test. It says, Abraham, uh, Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and his lot nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. One of the first questions that really you have to ask yourself when you read this is, why in the world does Abraham take Lot with him? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I've moved, I've rarely taken my nephew with me. You know, that's not something we normally do. And the question is, why uh, does Abraham take Lot? In in many ways, um, Lot is going to be a a, a counter uh, to the life of Abraham. That Abraham, in many regards, is going to be laying down his life and he's going to find it. And then on the other side of this, you're going to see an example of Lot and how a person is trying to pursue life. And oftentimes, he's losing it. But I can't help but think, and I may get in a little bit of trouble here because oftentimes I conjecture about what's going on, but I can't help but wonder if Abraham doesn't take Lot because it's somewhat of his backup plan. You see, Abraham understands, I'm old, Sarah's barren, and maybe in the back of his mind he thinks, maybe we can adopt the child from Lot. Maybe that's how God is going to fulfill his promise. So there's a little bit of hesitation. Do we ever do that? Do we ever step out in faith, but we want to have some backup plans in our life? So here he is stepping out. He's got Lot with him. And you know the other picture that I saw here that as I was watching this this week that stuck out to me is he takes all this stuff with him. And the, the kind of the picture that I had in mind as Abraham sets out here from Haran, I, I, I kind of picture him like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, he's got the old truck and it's all loaded down and him and Sarah and they're in kind of a caravan of cars and they're headed out uh, to go to a new place. But he's taking all this baggage with him, all this stuff. And what God is going to do is he's going to wean Abraham off of his reliance upon material things. But again, I was reminded, isn't that oftentimes a picture of our lives as well? When we set out to follow Christ, did we not bring a lot of baggage with us? A lot of past sins, a lot of past regrets. And God is going to wean us off of those past sins as we seek to follow him. So here is Abraham. He's got a lot. He's got all this stuff. And he's following God. And look at verses 6 through 9. Abraham passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I'll give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. 
Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. So he travels into Canaan. You'll remember Canaan is occupied by who? It's occupied by the Canaanites. And we've already learned of them that this is a people that are going to be idol worshippers. This is a, 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 a people who are worshiping other gods. And that oak of Mora there, the, the word Mora means uh, teaching. So this is oak of teaching. Most believe that this is a place of instruction on the worship of other gods, of other idols. And, and if you study uh, Canaanite uh, worship and what they worshiped, it was incredibly immoral. The picture that you're intended to see here is that Abraham, by God's leading, is headed out into enemy territory. And what does God say to him? I'm going to give you this land. This land is going to be yours. And God professes his love towards Abram. And Abraham professes his love towards God as he calls upon the name of the Lord. And where is he doing this? He's doing this in Satan's own backyard. In fact, many believe this is what inspired uh, Peter to write in 1 Peter 2, that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Isn't this a powerful picture that God is calling Abraham, and where does he call him into? The promised land, but it's filled with the enemy. And there in enemy territory, he is proclaiming the excellencies of God who called him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's us. That we go out into a lost and wicked world and we are called to take ground for the kingdom, to grow God's kingdom wherever we go. And so whoever's around us, God professes his love towards us and we we proclaim the name of God wherever we're at. We're, we're proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you can't help but see here as well a lot of similarities between Abraham and Jesus. You remember Jesus, um, he, uh, before his baptism or at his baptism, God publicly professes what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, in fulfillment of all righteousness, he's baptized. God says, this is my son, I love him. And then what happens next? Immediately, Jesus is led by the Spirit into a wasteland, and he will be tempted, and he will be tested. Here is Abraham. Abraham is professing his love towards God. God professes his love towards him. And then what happens next? He's going to be led out and he will experience a famine. So look with me in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So a famine hits, it's a severe famine, so probably a good bit of time has passed here. And the question that really must be asked is, was it a sin for Abraham to go down to Egypt? And I'm not really sure, although I have my feelings, but what we do see here is that at this point, there's no mentioning of God. So here in the promised land, there's going to be the test. And the test is this, can God meet my daily needs? Can I trust God in the days when I have nothing as much as I trust him when I have plenty? Is God alone good enough 
for this situation? Is God all that I really need? And you know, the question that we got to ask ourselves here is, can Abraham starve to death? Well, I mean, hypothetically, he's a man. He has physical needs. Yes, he could starve to death. But spiritually speaking, what do we know? God made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. He didn't lead him into the promised land so that he could die there. What Abraham should have done is just stay right there and trust God. But he's going to take matters into his own hands. As I was reading this, couldn't help but think of the disciples when they, Jesus says, we're going to go to the other side. Go to the other side. And they head out on the water and the storm comes. And what is their reaction? We're going to die. Now, did Jesus lead them out on that water and tell them, I'm going to meet you on this other side? Did he do that in order to see them drowned on the lake? No, he was going to take care of them. But he had to teach them to trust him. Well, right here, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. There's a famine. Abraham, trust me. I'll meet your needs. But what does Abraham think? I'm going to die. And now I've got to take matters into my own hands. So look with me, verses 11 through 13. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Please say that you're my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now, (laughs) there are so many problems found within these verses, uh, but let me just mention a few with you. One, he is trusting in his own wisdom rather than trusting in the Lord. He's going to hatch this nice little plan. Um, I think the idea is I can trust God with the promise, but over here in this area of food, I'm not sure I can trust him. And so what God needs is he needs a little help from Abraham. He needs a little help from me in this area. And by the way, do we ever do this? That God, your wisdom is good over in this area, but over here in these other areas, I'm not really sure I can trust you. And I'm going to have to come up with my own plan, and I'm going to have to help you out. I mean, surely we would never do this. Isn't it amazing how quickly we can become so foolish when we're faced with a trial? We bail out on God, and we start to make our own plans to help God out. Well, ultimately here, Abraham makes his own plans. And in his planning, he is trusting a lie rather than the Lord. I mean, this is remarkable. And I know in Abraham's mind, you know what I think he thinks? He thinks, well, this is just a white lie. I mean, she's kind of my sister. And by the way, this is not the only time he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to try the same deal another time later on down the road. But we know it's not just a little lie. His heart is to deceive. So he's trusting his own wisdom rather than the Lord. Secondly, he's thinking only of himself instead of God and others. I mean, this is, when you read the story and you realize this is the guy who's called in the New Testament the father of all who believe. This is a guy who gets a lot of press in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And here he is going into a very difficult spot with his wife Sarai. And you would expect Abraham to look at Sarai and say, Sarai, we're, we're, we're going to have to go down here to Egypt because there's a famine. And it's going to be dangerous. And they might try to hurt you. Uh, they might try to violate you. But listen, Sarah, I, I will lay down my life. 
I, I will do. There's nobody going to touch you. Even if I got to die, Sarah, there's no way I'll lay down my life if I have to. But that's not what he does, does he? He says, Sarah, we're, we're going to have to lie. I'm, I come up with a good lie, and, and you're going to have to buy into this lie. You're going to have to help me with this, and, and we're going to tell this lie uh, so that they don't kill me uh, and so that it'll go well with me, and we're going to do this so I will live. At this moment, is all about Abram. His, all, his life is, is not about the glory of God and the service of others. His life is about self-preservation and self-exaltation. Listen, Abraham, this is the, the great man of faith. He's willing to throw his wife under the bus to save his own skin. I mean, here is a man who is willing to compromise Sarah's purity and protection for his own selfish interests. In fact, you could say Abraham at this point, he's no longer worshiping God. He's worshiping Abraham. His life is caught up in, into himself, and it's all about material benefits rather than spiritual blessings. And as a result of this, he puts his family in a dangerous position. He puts Sarah in a really bad spot. He is jeopardizing her purity, her protection, and more than this, he is jeopardizing the entire plan of God. And why? For his own selfish interests. Now, men, I don't want to get too far off the track right here, but let this be a warning to all of us. When our lives become about our own personal interests, when our pursuit is merely material gain rather than faithfulness to God, we not only drop the ball, but we put our families in a really bad spot. So watch what happens next. Look at verses uh, 14 through 16. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. And what do we see here? To a large extent, Abram's plan, this, this nice plan he's hatched up, it all of a sudden backfires. So they believe his lies, which he probably thinks is working out pretty well. But I don't think, this is just my opinion, I don't think for a million years Abraham ever thought Sarah would be picked up by Pharaoh. <laughs> of all the scenarios that probably ran through Abraham's life or in his mind, I'm pretty sure that none of those scenarios involved Pharaoh saying, I think I'm going to take her as my wife. See, Abraham was a pretty powerful guy. He's got lots of stuff. I think Abraham thought, you know, it could go a little wrong here, but I can handle it. I can probably manipulate the circumstances and we can tell this lie and we can get around it and it's going to work out well for us. But then all of a sudden, Pharaoh decides, I think I'll take Sarah. And do you know who Abraham cannot manipulate? He cannot <laughs> manipulate Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the land. He can't manipulate him. He can't tell Pharaoh what to do. And so even though Abraham has gained a lot of wealth. Who has he lost? He's now lost his wife. 
I mean, I can only imagine what is going through Abraham's mind here is that this deal has backfired in a big way. I think Abraham's probably thinking to himself, I'm done. This is it. I've just ruined the whole plan of God. God is done with me. God is going to throw me out. Uh, Look at what we see, though, in verses 17 through 20, because God is so gracious, even when we mess up in our sin. And God graciously intervenes. Look at verses 17 through 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why do you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So here we see what? We see God graciously intervening. That God is not going to allow Abram's plan to go too far. And God graciously restrains him. Aren't you grateful for God's gracious restraint from time to time in your life? And so God intervenes and he strikes Pharaoh's house with plagues. And then God rebukes Abram. He rebukes him though through Pharaoh. Pharaoh comes to him and says, what have you done? Does that phrase sound familiar? Because what happened when Adam sinned? God came to Adam and what did he say? What have you done? Cain killed his brother Abel. God comes to Cain and says what? What have you done? Well, God now comes to Abram, although he does it through Pharaoh, which probably was particularly embarrassing. Listen, it's a bad place when the world, when the non-believer begins to lecture the Christian on morality and ethics. That's not a good place to be. By the way, does that ever happen in the church today? That a non-believer in the world comes to us as the church and says, one of your people that claims to be a Christian has lied and cheated me. Um, And we got nothing to say. It's a bad place. So here is Abraham being lectured called out and rebuked by an idol worshiper. And I think in this moment, Abraham was embarrassed. He was already probably about as low as a person could go. Now he's being lectured by Pharaoh. He's caught in a lie. And I think this guy is incredibly embarrassed and mournful over his situation. In fact, the only comparable situation I could think to this is Peter, who had betrayed Jesus, denied on him three times, and in a certain moment, he and Jesus lock eyes. And what did he do? He ran off and wept bitterly. I think Abraham probably felt a lot like Peter in this moment. And listen, if you've walked with God for any length of time in your life, you know what this feels like. You know what it feels like to let God down. Maybe to let your family down. And to make a mess and to receive the Lord's gracious hand of discipline. 
and you have nothing to say. As David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. But here's the critical piece. Here's the part that you can't miss. There's a way back to blessing. See, the critical piece is not failure. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall. The critical piece in Peter's life was would he return? Would he repent? The critical piece in Abraham's life will be the same. God is the redeemer. Listen, when God called Abraham, God knew all Abraham's sins. (laughs) He knew Abraham wasn't perfect. He knew, just like when we have kids, we know they're not perfect. We know they're going to mess up. God knew Abraham was going to mess up. So the same God who called Abraham is the same God who's going to pursue him as he runs down to Egypt. It'll be the same God who restrained him in his sin and kept it from going too far. And this same God is going to restore Abraham by his grace. This is the most important part that we must see. How will God restore Abraham? Well, we see the critical piece First, there will be repentance. Repentance means you turn around, you change your ways, you go back to God. Well, look with me in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, very quickly. It says, so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel mean the house of God and I to the place of the altar which he made there formerly and there Abram did what he called on the name of the Lord Abraham has to retrace his steps he got to pack back up the donkeys and all the stuff and they take a ride back to the promised land We had our pastoral meeting this week, and I love Pastor Dane said, boy, don't you know that was one long donkey ride. Can you imagine the looks Abraham got from Sarah on the way back? But the picture that I have is God graciously taking Abraham by the hand, and he leads him back to that spot where he first gave himself to the Lord. He's leading that place back where where Abraham will again. You know what he's going to do? He's going to admit he's a sinner. He cries out to God for forgiveness. He acknowledges again that he has no leg to stand on but the grace of God. And what we all need when we, we walked away from God into our own Egypt, in our own sin, in our own disobedience, following our own desires, following down roads that we thought would lead to life but only ended in destruction and pain, what we need to know in those moments is the gracious hand of God leading us into a repentance that leads to restoration. And listen to me this morning, no matter where you've been or what you've done, can I challenge you this morning, go back to where you began. Call on the name of the Lord and the same grace that you knew at the beginning that saved you is available to you today. So Abraham has to change directions. He's got to go back to where he began. And following repentance, there's restoration. 
Abraham here will call upon the name of the Lord. And in just a few short verses, as we're going to see next week, you know what God's going to tell Abraham? He's going to tell him again. You know what he's going to say? He's going to look at this land. Abram, the promise hadn't changed. I wonder if Abraham on that long donkey ride thought, maybe I'll know fellowship with God, but I'm surely not going to know those promises. Maybe God will bring me back, but it won't be the same. Do you know what Abraham is finding out? He turns back to God. Not only does he understand that he's going to know fellowship again with God, he's going to know it's even better. His relationship with God is deeper. And I think after God's severe, sometimes God's discipline, it's not easy to endure. It's embarrassing, it's painful. But like the perfect father that God is, he wraps, I just see him taking his arm around Abraham and says, son, we're, we're good, brother. Look at all that land. It's yours. The promise I made to you was never based on your obedience. It's based on what I'm going to do. It's almost as if Abraham's sins are as far as the east is from the west. It's almost as if God doesn't even remember all the junky stuff that Abram did back in Egypt. Folks, that's what you call the amazing grace of God. Because all of us are going to be tested at some point or another. Every, true faith is always a tested faith. But here's the real message of this narrative. <laughs> even the great heroes of faith, the great men of faith like Abraham, even they made mistakes and failed. Does that bring you a little encouragement today? And just as God, after Abraham had turned in repentance and faith, was restored by God by his grace, so that same grace is available to you. And the picture that we have of God throughout Scripture is always a God who at the slightest turn of repentance, just the slightest turn of one of his children back to him, and God runs to embrace them. Some of you find yourself in a place where you have failed a test. You've wandered in your sin. You thought it was going to lead to life. You thought, boy, I know better than God. I'm going to have to help God out in this area. And you ran down to your own Egypt, relied upon your own wisdom, told lies, and it didn't lead to life. It led to embarrassment and pain, and you're wondering if God still loves you. You're wondering if God can restore you. You're wondering if God can still use you draw some encouragement from the father of all who believe Abraham this morning and know that if you'll turn to God in repentance and faith there is grace 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 God's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace God's grace grace that is greater than all your sin he will restore you he will return you to a place of usefulness in his kingdom work. And his promises will never fail. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace. And we ask, Lord, this morning that you would search us. 
Lord, we pray that you would search us in the depths of our hearts to see if there be any hurtful way in us. Lord, we pray by your grace you would restrain us in our sin. Awaken us to our sin. And I pray that we would learn something this morning from the life of Abraham. That we would learn from the grace that you demonstrated towards this man who was so critical in your kingdom work. And Lord, I pray that in remembering the grace that you demonstrated to Abraham in his faith and repentance, Lord, I pray that you would encourage all of us today, no matter where we've been, no matter how far we've strayed, that you're still able to restore us. You're still able to use us. You're still able to return us to a place of blessing. Lord, we ask this morning that you would meet with us. We ask that you would do business in our hearts for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his glorious name. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.